Thanks for tuning into the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in. I, uh, I learned something a couple weeks ago, and this is going to feel like a real weird intro to a sermon, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Um, do y'all, have you ever seen how a pigeon makes a nest? Anyone seen this? Perfect. <laughs> Here's how pigeons make nests. Here's another photo just for context. And then this last one right here. How amazing is that? The beauty of the pigeon's mind in how to build a nest. And I remember reading this, don't even ask about my algorithms. I have no idea how I stumbled across this information. And I felt like uh, when I saw this, I realized that this picture actually represents much of what my faith looked like for years. Sort of that like minimum entrance requirement kind of posture, like, yeah, I'll throw a couple sticks at it. And everyone could, I'm sure, my parents in particular could see like, I don't, I don't know that he is really taking any of this all that seriously. That was a very humbling realization for me that much of my life, my faith looked something like that. Let me ask this question. If we all have 168 hours every single week, and let's, assi- let's assume that you're like by our standards, you're like a really involved Christian. Maybe of that 168 Two is spent at church on Sunday, serving and attending, and maybe two is in a small group. The question I want us to kind of sit with for the next half hour or so is this. What are you going to do with the other 164 hours? Of the 168 hours that we're given every single week, what are we going to do with the additional hours? Think about it this way. If Jesus spent 12 hours a day for three years with his disciples, that would come to over 13,000 hours together. And even after all that time in proximity with Jesus, can we all agree that the disciples still had a lot of growing to do? Jesus is not simply after our Sundays, as critical as that is. I want to argue that he's after our entire Life. We're in our third and final week of a series we're calling Apprentices of Jesus. And one of the phrases that we've been using, and I believe this with all my heart, is that a church is only as good as its disciples. Not its attenders, not its converts, not people that would check a box on a form, but people who are actually discipling Jesus. And the language that we're using is apprentice, to to apprentice Jesus. So we've been kind of unpacking our mission statement, which many of you have heard uh, numerous times at this point. It's to be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. That's, that's what we're about. That's the, that's the bullseye for us. And you can see this all over scripture, but there's one verse in particular that I think kind of distills this down really well. Uh, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In that one verse, we see three elements of what it means to be an apprentice. Following Jesus, that's the presence piece. Being changed by Jesus, I will make you into something, and then joining Jesus's mission. That's the fishers of men part. So because I know that y'all have been clamoring for more Venn diagrams, here's, here's how that looks in, in Venn form here. Preachers, DJs, bank robbers, and mom taking off your sweater. And they all have in the common, put your hands in the air. Um, This is what happens when I write sermons too late at night, by the way. 
I think this will be hilarious and whatever. No, here's how it shows up in Venn form. Uh, we have presence, formation, and mission. And what we talked a little bit about last week was what happens when only two of the three are emphasized. We can end up with a holy huddle, burnout, or the immature activist. And I wanted to kind of briefly unpack. My buddy Glenn wrote a book called Resilient Pastor, and he explains a little bit about what happens when only one of the three is emphasized on a Sunday morning. So that A there is about apprenticeship to Jesus. This is about our lives. But in a Sunday morning in particular, here's some of the deficiencies we see when only one of the three is emphasized. If it's all about presence, he would use the word encounter, services are immersive, the staff are performers, the church is consumers, and the temptation is to fabricate an experience, to try to like stir up emotions so it feels like, oh, I'm in the, I'm in the presence of God. If only formation is emphasized, services become sort of a class or a lecture. The staff are the teachers, the church are the students, and the temptation is to believe that formation is automatic. We talked about this last week. As long as I just learn more things, as long as I leave a little more intelligent biblically than when I came, then formation is happening. If only mission is emphasized, services become a bit of a showroom, and the staff become salesmen, and the church becomes the marketing team, and the temptation is to justify ungodly means for godly ends. And so you can see why all three of those are important in apprenticeship to Jesus. And we'll each have kind of our own proclivities, but the, the bullseye is the A, is the apprenticeship to Jesus. Today we want to talk about that last one, which is mission, but in the context of the previous two weeks, presence and formation. We would do well to remember this. Jesus says, come to me, before he says, go for me. We've got to remember that. He says, come be with me, before he ever sends us out on mission, and that that order, I think, is incredibly important, and here's why. We cannot share the love of God until we've been transformed by the love of God. So many of us have been trying really hard, I think, with good intentions to do all of the sharing and have not yet actually been transformed. And the irony is that actually in the sharing, we continue to be transformed, but we cannot share the love of God to the world until we have been transformed by the love of God. Think about it this way. Did you know that more than 50% of Jesus' miracles were interruptions? Like the things that we make flannel graphs out of in VeggieTale episodes, like we, the things that we hold up, like on these, this is like the main anchor points of the ministry of Jesus. More than 50% of them were interruptions. This is why the be and become piece is so important. Because if we're not intimately connected to the vine, being transformed into Christ-likeness, we will not know how to respond when the interruptions come. And they will come. One of the things that keeps me up at night as a pastor is how many opportunities God has placed right under our noses that we miss because we're too distracted. Or we're connected to something other than him. And here's what I've found to be true. The more transformed we are, the more burdened for God's world we become. The more, tra the more transformation God does in our heart should not lead to how, how jaded we become toward the world. Or how we sort of throw up our hands in protest. Or we say, not really my, but the more transformed we are into the likeness of Christ, the more burdened we will become for a world so desperately in need of hope and healing. This is the language of mission. The key text on that is Matthew chapter 28. Many of you will know it already. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, this is post-resurrection, by the way, that's really important. The friend and Messiah and rabbi was just raised from the dead. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make what? disciples of all nations, not just your little corner of the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to, what's the word? <laughs> obey, not just know about or memorize, but to obey everything I have commanded you and then a promise. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what I love is that he's, he's, I imagine the disciples hearing this were still probably trying to wrap their heads around what actually happened. And so post-resurrection, Jesus makes this really profound declaration, all authority is mine. There's no authority that you can think of or that you will encounter that is above me. All authority is mine. And the very next thing he says, I think is really key, after he establishes all authority is mine, now go. He doesn't say, hey, go because like this is the right thing to do, or I have this really clever idea, or I think this philosophy is really going to take. Jesus is raised from the grave and says, in light of that, go. Go and make disciples. Go teach them to obey everything that I have already shown you. Now, it's been said, I think it's right, and commentators have asserted now for decades that the, the word there, go, is it actually maybe better translated, in your going. In your going, do these things. It's not just simply about like a one-off trip or a one-off experience or a one-off event or whatever that is. It's in your going, live this kind of way. I would say it this way. Mission isn't something we add to our life. It is our life. What I don't want you to hear in the next couple of minutes together is like, great, now there's one more thing I have to like add to an already jam-packed schedule. Especially during Christmas, a lot of us feel that. Like, oh man. He's going to ask you to do one more thing. Mission is not about adding more to our life. It is our life. It's less about addition and more about integration. And the thing that's really sobering is that y'all, we're all living on mission for someone or something already. Right? That's, all, that's already happening. Put a little more snarkily, I would say this. You are always sharing your faith whether you intend to or not. Whatever you... Whatever you believe in, wherever your faith is actually anchored, you're sharing it by the way you spend your time and your money, the things you talk about, the things you post, the things you share. We're always, always sharing our faith, whether we intend to or not. Amen. What faith are you sharing with your life? Here's the sobering truth. A couple years ago, uh, Barna Research Group was asked this question. They were asking a, a group of Christians about the Great Commission, and they said, have you heard of the Great Commission? Here's what they found. 51% said no, nope, never heard of it. 6% said unsure, it rings a bell. And then 25% said yes, but I can't explain it. It comes to what, 82%? The mission that Jesus gave the church, 82% were like, eh, I'm fuzzy at best on that. I've heard it said that Jesus' last words should be our first priority. This is what he says right before his ascension. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach them to obey. And yet we found ourselves in a place that I think is slightly, if not very troubling. Around the same time, Gallup did a poll, and I found this fascinating. 76% uh, of Americans said they were Christian, and 8% said they were following Jesus. Jesus did not offer such a category. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian, meaning what? I believe Christian things. I've checked a box. My intellectual ascent is towards Jesus. 8% said they were actually following Jesus. For example, the purpose of a car is not to fill it with gas, right? Would anyone say that the purpose, the purpose of a car is just to fill it with gas? No, gas is to enable it to then go somewhere. Gas simply helps it get there. The purpose of church is not simply to fill us with information. It's to equip us to go somewhere. Yes. 
to live on mission wherever God has placed you, wherever you are at, by the way. And I would say it this way. If you've ever left your house, you've been on a mission trip. Wherever you are at, God has you where you're at on purpose, for a purpose, in that neighborhood, at that job, at that school, with those friends, at that cubicle. You're there on purpose. We're living on mission. The invitation of Jesus is not just a belief, but a way, a way of life. Now, and I'm going to take a couple of pit stops along the way because some of us will feel like the crushing weight still of like, oh, what I have to add to this. I think it's really, really important that we remember this equation. Romans 2.4 says that God's kindness leads to a changed life, not a changed life leads to God's kindness. He initiates. It's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance, the metanoia, the changing of directions. It's not, oh, if I live on mission, and if I take this really seriously, and then God will love me. It's too late for that. It's, it's too late. God's love leads to a changed and transformed life. Dr. Robert Mahon puts it this way. I have uh, part of the quote on the screen, but I want to read what comes before it. He says, our spiritual journey is not about our setting out to find God. It is a journey of learning to yield ourselves to God and discover where God will take us. The word became text to provide a place of transforming encounter with God so that the world might become flesh, so that the word might become flesh in us for the sake of the world. And here's what he says. Often we will expend amazing amounts of energy and resources to be in the world for God, but you see we are called to be in God for the world. I have not stopped thinking about that since I read it. Because I've spent so much of my life trying to be in the world for God when I believe the invitation is to be in God for the sake of the world. My point is this. Um, the goal has always been for us to continue the kingdom work of Jesus. And good theology without love is bad theology. The goal has always been for us to continue what he started. Here's just a couple of examples in the Gospel of John. John 14 Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. A couple of verses later, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. A few chapters later, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are not simply supposed to sing about it, Read about it, preach about it, pray on it, as good as all those things are. We're to do it. Amen. We're to be about it. I think that's a chance of the rapper quote. We're, we're supposed to not just simply know about, but to live on mission, to continue the kingdom work of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to stand up against corruption, to tell weird stories about the kingdom of God, to forgive enemies, to give fishing advice, to wash nasty feet, to go to weddings, to take the occasional nap, and to flip the occasional table. We are to continue the kingdom work of Jesus. And if we claim to be saved by grace but won't extend grace to others, that should give us pause. If, if we are perfectly fine having a bumper sticker or a watercolor painting in a room that says we're saved by grace, but unwilling to extend grace to those around us, at the very least, that should give us pause. So let me, let me ask this question. Uh, what was the most controversial part of Jesus' ministry? Was it his sermons? Was it his disciples who he chose to be his followers? Was it him casting out demons? Uh, my conclusion might surprise you. I'd argue that the most controversial part of Jesus' ministry was who he ate with. Yeah. Leonard Sweet puts it this way. 
said, Jesus was killed because of his table talk and his table manners, the stories he told and the people he ate with. Here's a great example, Luke chapter 5. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What we see in these few short verses is that the religious elite were fine with Jesus like serving the outcast and caring for the marginalized. What they took issue was, was him being associated with them. That for them was a step too far. Now notice what Luke says here. Luke calls them tax collectors and others, but the Pharisees call them tax collectors and sinners. The message here is subtle but clear. These others do not measure up to the standard expected by these religious elite. But at Christmas, we celebrate a God who comes close. A God who is proximate. Presence precedes proclamation. Some of us are so eager to sort of bash others with our memory verses and our biblical knowledge from a distance. Presence precedes proclamation. I would assert that how Jesus used the table received more criticism than any other practice. And I'm going to say it as bluntly as I can. If we're going to apprentice Jesus, the way we use the table will be controversial. Maybe ask this question. When was the last time I was criticized for who I ate with? When was the last time I made religious people uncomfortable by who I was choosing to invest in? And the time I was spending. This is not to say that we don't, I, we talk about gospel community all the time. Like, this is not to say that you're off on an island somewhere. But the way we use the table should be controversial. This was a defining part of the work and ministry of Jesus. Not just the big and the miraculous moments, but creating space at the table for others to experience the radical love of God. And I would argue, now, maybe more than ever, people still ache for this. People long to be known, to belong to be seen for who they really are. Does that resonate with anyone else? When we talk about following Jesus, we don't tend to think about food, though. But in the first century, the table was central to life with God. Pious Jews would never share their table with someone outside of their covenant community. To do so, they believed, would defile the entire gathering. The table was sort of a, it was a boundary marker to communicate who was in and who was out. It was an indication also of status. It was very obvious. At the Jewish meal, it would be obvious who was in charge, who held the most power, who was the wealthiest. It was designed to create a superiority, a stratification. And yet Jesus inverts and subverts all of that. So let me ask, how would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came. The Son of Man came. The Son of Man came preaching the word. The Son of Man came performing miracles. The Son of Man came to die on a cross. Tim Chester wrote a brilliant book, and he said that there are three ways the New Testament, three ways and three ways only, that the New Testament completes that sentence. The first, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then third, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The first two are statements of purpose, 
And the third is a statement of method. What did he came to do? To serve and to seek and save the lost. How did he do it? Eating and drinking. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either at a meal, leaving a meal, going to a meal, or making a meal. In Luke 5, when they asked Jesus why he was doing what he was doing, he revealed the strategy for his rescue mission. Now, the, the phrase here, son of David, is Daniel's label for one who would come before God to receive authority over the nations. And now Jesus, the son of man, has come. But what does that mean? Does he come with an army of angels? Does he come with clouds of heaven? Does he come with a blaze of glory? Does he come with a megaphone shouting from a platform? No, Luke tells us that he comes eating and drinking. Jews of that day would not have answered that question that way. They would have said the Son of Man will come to vindicate the righteous and defeat God's enemies. They did not expect him to come to seek and save the lost. They would have said that the Son of Man came in glory and in power. They would not have said he comes eating and drinking. In the first century, maybe even more so than today, having a meal was an act of intimacy and belonging. Dr. Mark Moore says it this way. He says, in a sense, Jesus' subversive message was embodied in his table fellowship. He used meals as a fulcrum for social reconstruction. Truly, Jesus turned these tables into pulpits and used them to reconfigure his world. Now, I'll say this, and we'll talk a whole lot more about this in the new year. Jesus isn't also just a good hang, by the way. Like, that's not the takeaway. Like, have more meals. He's also calling people to repentance. He's painting a, a picture of what it means to surrender our lives to the only one worthy of our lives. But I would argue that Jesus' vision of creating sacred spaces of divine hospitality to bring outsiders in is at the heart of the Jesus mission. The table is a bridge. It's almost like it's in our name. What would, we, what would happen if we began to see our tables not just as a place to kind of fill our bellies, but as a, as a bridge to those hurting and lost in desperate need of light? Missiologist Alan Hirsch puts it this way. He says, if every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around our table once a week to neighbors, we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. <laughs> That's a strategy I can get behind. Anyone else with me? We would eat our way into the kingdom. I would argue that for 2,000 years, the most impactful church has always been the one gathered around the table following both the words and ways of Jesus together. The table is where the gospel is embodied. And I would argue that the table was Jesus' main change-making tool. It turned foes into friends and strangers into family. When we can move out from behind our screens and our devices and our white picket fences, we stand a much better chance of seeing the sacred dignity of the other. Yeah. As Brene Brown has said, and I've mentioned numerous times, people are hard to hate up close. People are hard to fear up close. They're hard to vilify up close. They're hard to malign. As, as long as people remain sort of like ideological enemies to us, we will keep them at arm's distance. As long as they're the person that voted that way, believes that way, lives in that part of the country, dresses that way, listens to that kind of music, we'll fill in your own blank. It is, it is so easy for people to remain enemies, but people are hard to hate up close. The change that we long to see, I would argue, does not come through hot takes and mic drops. It comes when we actually sit face to face around the table with friends, strangers, and enemies. I say we give that a try. So here's, here's, here's what's true for most of us. In this next week, uh, you will likely have 21 meals, right? Here's a representation that I designed. I'm very proud of it. Yeah. I, I hope it's 21. I, hold on, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, 21. Most of us will have 21 meals this next week, give or take, right? 
What I'm asking you, especially those who like think in the big and the dramatic, what, what, if, what if we spent just one, just one meal in the next week? Or every week for the next year? What if we just spent one meal? You're already going to eat anyway. You already have to do it. Your body requires it. What if we spent one meal thinking missionally about our table? Who, who can I love, in, love on? Who can I bring close? Who, what bridge can I build? Maybe it's someone who's far from God. Maybe it's someone that you know is desperately hurting. Maybe it's someone that you just don't know much about or you've actually been afraid of. What if once a week we took one meal and asked God, would you move in this place? What if we just took two more of the 168 hours we have been given? And don't do this alone. Team up with your spouse or your small group. Get out the calendar. Talk to your kids about it. It doesn't have to be extravagant. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. Look for someone who's hurting. Listen to their heart. Offer them grace. You can do this if you're single. You can do this if you're a student. You can do this if you're an empty nester. What are the tables in your life where you could bring the gospel? What if at each table we sat at, we prayed this simple prayer? At this table as it is in heaven. What would change? I'm not, I'm not asking you to get all weird, right? Some of us, some of us are like real nervous about, oh, I don't want to be that Christian. You know, I, I totally get it. I'm not asking you to do like a whole Latin mass before every meal. That might be, not weird out your neighbors. What if just quietly to ourselves at every table, not just in your dining room, but at your boardroom, in the cafeteria, at the cubicle, before we sat down, Lord, at this table as it is in heaven. It's so easy for us to say on earth as it is in heaven and think like somewhere other than where we're actually at. You know what I mean? What if we took Jesus' word seriously, in my going, wherever I'm at, whatever table I'm at, at this table, as it is in heaven, God. God has you where you're at on purpose for a purpose, your neighborhood, your school, your friend group, your job. And for some of you, maybe it is hopping on a plane. Maybe it is actually flying across an ocean, but maybe it's simply walking across the street or across the office. I'm not, listen, for some of us, it will be hopping up, but some of us will be packing up and moving and living on mission in a different region, a different state, a different country. But for a lot of us, it will simply be walking across the street. What would that look like? And just as a reminder, this is messy. It's slow. Maybe you're picturing someone right now who's like really high maintenance or socially awkward. You may not see the impact right away, but may we remember this. Fruitfulness is God's responsibility. Faithfulness is ours. So many of us want to like bear the weight of like results, and I, I feel a lot of that. Fruitfulness is not my responsibility. Faithfulness ours though is though is to be obedient with what He has given us. And again, we mention this every week. If if we're going to be intentional about living on mission, it, it takes a plan. A good place to start is Bridge.tv/RuleOfLife. If you want sort of a, a trellis, a, a structure to order your life in a way that is meaningful, to to bear maximum amount of fruit for the kingdom. It requires intentionality. I encourage you, before the year is done, get with your spouse, your kids, your small group, or your neighbors, or whatever it is, and develop some kind of prayerfully, Holy Spirit, what is the plan for the next year for me to actually live on mission? And here's the thing, and you'll hear me say this a lot next year. This is an all-hands-on-deck thing. We are all meant to participate. Because church isn't a building. Worship isn't just music. Prayer is not for the experts. Ministry isn't just for pastors. It's for all of us. We won't change the world by simply going to church. We'll change it by being the church. Wherever God has you, whatever that context looks like, let's set tables so that everyone can meet Jesus because the the real feast is not whatever meal you offer or a cup of coffee, it's him. The real feast is Jesus. I love what the prophet Isaiah wrote. 
It says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affairs. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. This is what we offer. Belonging, welcome, healing, salvation, a place at the table. A place at the table. And if, if you need reminding of it, God has invited us to his table. So maybe we should ask, who do I need to invite to mine? Amen. The scandal of the gospel is that God, when we were yet sinners, he loved us and pursued us and invited us to his table. And listen, we're going we're gonna to make mistakes. We're going to fall way short. Even just in this experience of like inviting people to our table. But we remember this, we do not work for God's approval. We work from it. We don't do these things to impress him, to earn his favor and affection. We do it because in Christ Jesus, we already have it. We don't work for it. We work from it. Just to kind of put a bow on it, just so that we're all clear. Our strategy as a church is not my sermons. Our strategy is not our music or our programs or our ministry or our buildings or our websites. It's all that. Our strategy is you. It's the community of God, the people of God, his bride, his church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, thinking missionally about every table that we sit at. How do we invite the kingdom of God to this moment, God, at this table as it is in heaven? To think missionally about one meal in your neighborhood, in your industry, to experience the beauty and the power of Jesus. You are our strategy and the table is our method. It may seem small, it may seem insignificant, I think that the humble table is the vehicle by which God can change the world. I'll wrap with this story. There's a, a story that I, I heard about just a couple weeks ago about a guy named Dashrath Manji, affectionately known as the Mountain Man. And uh, on January 14th, 1929, Dashrath was born into the Masaras, which was the lowest possible caste system in Indian society. And while bringing her husband food and water along the steep mountainous terrain, uh, his wife, Falguni Devi, slipped. When a villager notified Manji of the incident, he ran off to find her at the bottom of a cliff. But the clinic was miles away and too much time had passed to save her life. And so in an effort to prevent such tragedies from happening again, he boldly vowed to carve out a path through the mountain. And for 22 years, Manji worked to make safe, make a safer road through the mountains. He burned firewood on the rocky terrain and splashed the heated surface with water to chisel away at the cracked boulders and turn them into rubble. When a drought struck their town, Manji's family moved to another city, yet he continued to carve the 30-foot wide path. He plowed fields to earn money during the day and resumed his chiseling project at night. Manji was able to finally complete the path in 1982. It was 360 feet long and changed the lives of local villagers. The 35 miles they previously had to walk in order to reach the next community were now cut down to just 10, and nobody had to fear dying along the journey. Small acts every single day to help people find healing. It's, it's no surprise to me that the word hospital and hospitality both come from the same word because they both lead to healing. 
for those of us who want to kind of give our lives to some kind of big dramatic, I think that's noble. What, what if we started with the table? Small acts to chisel away at the mountain in people's hearts to get them to Jesus. And it might take decades. It might take longer. Is it possible, though, that God wants to include us? And I want you to notice how the Great Commission begins. I didn't read this verse earlier. But in Matthew 28, verse 17, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love that that's included. Because Jesus doesn't even seem to skip a beat. It says, they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, great, all authority is mine. Some doubted. Some maybe like you today, you're like, is this really going to work? Like, could that really make any kind of meaningful difference in my neighborhood, in my job, in my family? And even in our doubts, Jesus reminds us, listen, the authority's not yours. The power's not yours. It's mine. I think he bookends it on purpose. All authority is mine, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, which is going to be longer than our life on planet Earth, by the way. As I'm with you, the power's not yours. The Great Commission begins with some doubt, and Jesus says, good, go anyway. (laughs) Go anyway. Jesus did not give us the Holy Spirit so we could sit on the sidelines and wait for someone else to do something. He put his spirit in us to push back darkness wherever we find it, wherever we see it. I say, I vote, let's push back some darkness. Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you who support our mission, thank you for your joyful generosity. It's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel. You can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church. We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at bridgechurchtn. Thanks again for listening.